0: Good morning. I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, June 5th. In today's news, two Buffalo police officers are suspended after shoving a 75-year-old protester and then leaving him on the ground as he bled out from his head. As protests continue in D.C., President Trump clashes with the mayor over who controls the city's streets. And... The black and white economic divide is as bad today as it was in 1968 when the riots broke out. But first, the big idea. George Floyd was unique, but he was also ordinary. His homegoing on Thursday unfolded under the most abnormal circumstances, but it was also deeply familiar. My colleague Robin Gavan a Pulitzer Prize winner who's African-American, explains in a dispatch from the service that perhaps it is in those details that there is hope. Here's what Robin wrote. We'd seen it all before. The grieving family, the bold-faced participants, the declarations of injustice. If there are differences, they were in the details. And perhaps in the details There is hope. Floyd's family filled the memorial service at North Central University in Minneapolis wearing their dignified mourning fashion, dark suits and sober dresses. The sad women and the big men with tears in their eyes took their seats of honor. As the service opened, Floyd's brothers gathered behind the golden coffin and gave the world snippets of his beloved personality, words that would make him the one the family called Perry, more than the victim in that video, the catalyst of an uprising and a symbol now in the hands of the world. Philanese Floyd told anecdotes of playing ball with his brother, of eating banana and mayonnaise sandwiches with him, and how they were always their mother's sons. George Floyd was just a guy in all the simplicity and all the complexity that entails. The memorial service had the touchstones of the Black Church. The soloist sang an imperfect but emotional rendition of Amazing Grace. And the audience raised their hands in praise. Men dabbed their perspiring brows with handkerchiefs. Each speaker delivered a mini-sermon, and that was just fine with the audience because a homegoing takes time. The service took place against the backdrop of COVID-19 something that once seemed so strange and rare and now seems to have faded into the background like readily ignored white noise. Some guests were wearing masks. Amy Klobuchar wore a bandana. And they kind of, sort of, practiced social distancing, even as they were shaking hands and leaning in to exchange greetings and hugs. Many of the masks read, I can't breathe, which were among the last words that Floyd spoke as he died with a white police officer's knee pressed down on his neck. But those were also the final gasps of Eric Garner, who also died by police force a few years back in New York. The masks weren't extraordinary because this has become our shrugged-off reality, and the truth that they proclaimed has become grotesquely familiar. There were also masks emblazoned with the letters N-A-N for the National Action Network, which meant that its founder, the Reverend Al Sharpton, was on site. Of course Sharpton was there, dutifully masked and gloved. He's always there in these situations. Sharpton was at the lectern letting his words roar and flow, telling stories that circled back on each other in the familiar hermeneutics of black preachers. He talked about growing up poor and watching cockroaches scatter in the bright light, And that led to an explanation of how he spent a lifetime chasing away a more malignant kind of infestation all over our country. When Sharpton was finished, he started thanking dignitaries and introducing guests and meandering into tangents, which is what preachers do when they're winding down from their sermons. One half expected Sharpton to start taking up an offering. But then the singers began and the praying began. The memorial was familiar in all its contours, with its audience of saddened bureaucrats, civil rights veterans like Jesse Jackson, dashes of celebrity including Kevin Hart, and the lawyer Benjamin Crump, who has become the omnipresent counselor of grieving, victimized Black families. Floyd has been elevated into an icon. The mural that loomed over his casket, the one that framed his face in a halo of flames and made him look otherworldly underscored that. In recent years there have been many emblems of racial injustice, and amazing grace, and thoughts and prayers, or familiar balms. But Sharpton noted that this moment may prove to be distinctive. A different time and a different season, is how he put it. The mourners are not only the deceased's immediate family and others who look like them, those in the majority have stepped forward in bountiful numbers. They were in the sanctuary with their heads lowered for Floyd. They've been protesting. They've taken knees. And so there is hope. Not because white people see themselves as allies, but because they recognize what it means to be human. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we end what has been Another hellish week in America. Number one. In a video from Buffalo, New York, a police officer can be seen pushing a 75 year old man with an outstretched arm while another officer shoves a baton into him. A third officer appears to shove colleagues toward the man. The man falls to the ground. His head whips backward onto the pavement with a thud and he lies motionless. Someone is yelling in the video that the man is bleeding out of his ear, and you can see on the video blood pooling beneath the man's head on the street. But the officers in riot gear kept walking, leaving the man on the ground. He was later transported to the hospital where he is in serious condition with a very serious head injury. The Buffalo Police Department declined to identify the officers who did this. What's especially galling? is that the Buffalo Police Department's press release initially said that the man was injured when he tripped and fell. But the video shows that was an odious lie. Dallas police, who see another officer use inappropriate physical force, will be now required, starting today, to intervene. A new rule, known as a duty-to-intervene policy, is meant to create a police culture that could have prevented a death like Floyd's and stopped the kind of thing that we saw in Buffalo. In so many of these cases, justice is only possible because of video. In Tacoma, Washington, Mayor Victoria Woodards called last night for the firing of four police officers there who were involved in the death of Manuel Ellis, a 33-year-old black man. New video footage that emerged last night from his arrest shows the cops beating Ellis senselessly on the side of the road repeatedly striking him as he struggles with officers. The footage shows the police telling him to put his hands behind his back while they're already on top of him. A Philadelphia student who was charged with assaulting a police officer earlier this week during the protests was released last night after video showed that the cop had actually roughed him up. Prosecutors dismissed the charges against Evan Gorski after seeing videos that had gone viral on YouTube and Twitter. All three men accused of killing Ahmad Arbery, the black jogger in Georgia, will now stand trial for his murder. Not just the guy who pulled the trigger. A judge in Glynn County, Georgia, announced the ruling after a day-long hearing that revealed that the shooter allegedly uttered the N-word as the victim lay dying on the road. None of them, none of the three, would have been charged with any crimes had it not been For the video. In Temecula, California, Mayor James Stewart has just resigned after sending an email earlier this week claiming that police in his city had never killed a, quote, good person of color. He wrote that police in his city had never killed a, quote, good person of color. He sent the email in response to a constituent asking what he and his administration were doing to address systemic racism in policing. Stewart claims that the word good was mistakenly added by the talk-to-text software he used to compose the message. Number two. An email from a military planner at the Pentagon set off alarm bells in the office of D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser late Wednesday night. The official was seeking guidance as they determined, quote, route restrictions for the movement of tactical vehicles and military forces from Fort Belvoir, which is in Virginia, into D.C. to assist, quote, operations. To Bowser's aides, this request smacked of an imminent escalation in the federal force that President Trump has marshaled to quell the large street demonstrations over police brutality near the White House. During a news conference yesterday, Bowser said she is alarmed. By the continuing-to-grow presence of federal security authorities in the city, she declared that she wants all federal troops from out-of-state out of her city. She also expressed concern that the Trump administration has moved to extend security barriers beyond the White House perimeter to now fully encircle Lafayette Square, closing it completely to the public. Bowser worries that these changes will be permanent. She noted that this is the people's house, not Trump's house. The White House is so heavily fortified right now, after more fencing and barricades were erected yesterday, that it resembles the monarchical palaces or authoritarian compounds of regimes in faraway lands. It's strikingly incongruous with the historic role of the executive mansion at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. In fact, during World War II, Franklin Roosevelt, said that he did not want fences erected around the White House because he thought that it would send the wrong message. America, FDR explained, was a free society. Now, Trump supporters see a projection of absolute strength. They see a leader controlling the streets. His critics see a wannabe dictator and a president hiding from his own citizenry. I was down at the White House late last night covering the protests and a really big thunderstorm came through. There were sheets of rain and lots of lightning. A lightning bolt even hit the Washington Monument. But the peaceful protesters were not deterred. Bowser has lifted the city's curfew, and more large protests are expected here over the weekend. Number three. We talk a lot about police brutality, and we should. But what's not been getting enough attention are the deep, Economic inequalities that African Americans also face. By more than a dozen metrics that we evaluated, the gap between the finances of blacks and whites is as wide in 2020 as it was in 1968, when a run of landmark civil rights legislation culminated in the Fair Housing Act in response to centuries of unequal treatment of blacks in every part of society and business. In the decades since, though, white wealth has soared while black wealth has stagnated. Many have pointed out the far larger share of white millionaires than black. But even among the middle class, the inequities are stark. In 1968, a typical middle class black household had $6,600 in wealth, compared with $71,000 for the typical middle class white household. This is according to data that we have adjusted for inflation. In 2016, the typical middle-class black household had $13,000 in wealth versus $150,000 for the median white household, an even larger gap in percentage terms. Wealth takes into account not just wages that people earn for work, but their homes, their stock portfolios, and other assets they have. More wealth makes for a more comfortable, safe life. But more importantly, wealth is passed on to the next generation their parents' wealth gives white children a boost at birth, an advantage many of their black peers lack. Higher education has long been touted as a ticket to the middle class, but for black Americans that has not been as true as you might hope. The typical black household headed by someone with an advanced degree, an advanced degree, has less wealth than a white household with only a high school diploma. The wealth gap is even more pronounced among less educated Americans. A white household whose head has only a high school diploma has 10 times the wealth of a black family with the same level of education. The fact that black families start off with so much less wealth makes it difficult to catch up. Sadly, the current economic crisis is almost certainly going to make these gaps worse, not better. The first economic victims of COVID-19 were the service industries that employ disproportionate numbers of black and brown workers. As a result, after the great lockdown of this spring, fewer than half of all black adults have a job right now. Labor Department figures released yesterday show that only 48 percent of black adults in America are employed right now, tied for the worst rate on record. The equivalent rates for white and Hispanic Americans have also dropped precipitously and alarmingly, but they remain far above 50 percent. There is real potential for an economic depression, a deep and long-lasting downturn among black workers, even as the rest of the economy, particularly white households, rebound. More than one in five black Americans now report this week that they often or sometimes do not have enough food to eat, more than three times the rate of white families. Black families are also four times as likely as whites to report that they missed a mortgage payment during the crisis. These numbers bode very poorly for the already low black homeownership rate, which was made much worse by the 2008 housing crisis. With far less savings or wealth to draw on, blacks are especially vulnerable to the downturn. Tragically, everything I just said does not even begin to address the higher hospitalization and death rates that African-Americans face from the coronavirus itself. And that is The Daily 202 for Friday, June 5th. Thank you for listening. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick, and our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Holman. Stay safe this weekend. I'll talk to you on Monday.